This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Hello, everyone. This is Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, and I am Nora Ronkainen. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. The focus of our talk today is on sociological understandings of aging, physical activity and sports. We will explore the competing cultural narratives surrounding aging and their implications for involvement in physical activity in later life. And I am very excited to introduce today's guest. Adam Evans is an associate professor at the Department of Nutrition, Exercise and Sport at the University of Copenhagen. He is currently director of the Health Implementation and Innovation Research Group, and he is also the editor-in-chief at the European Journal of Sport and Society. His research interests include embodied experience of sport, exercise and physical activity, and especially in the context of aging. So welcome, madam, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks very much. That was a great introduction. Thanks. It makes me sound important. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I I think we will be hearing some very interesting, exciting ideas about aging as as we go on to our chat. Sure. I guess kind of to start out, I always like to hear a little bit about the researcher's background in terms of why did you start exploring this topic? And I think I can say from my part that well, like aging is not my main focus, but I ended up writing a little bit about aging because when I was researching athletes' careers, aging was something that kind of always came up as an existential challenge and almost as an existential crisis in in athletes' lives. So that kind of took me on that path to explore it a bit further. How did it go for you? Like, why and how did you end up uh, being an a aging researcher? Sure, yeah. It's actually a bit similar to yourself, actually, Nora. So, I was doing a PhD on a, a kind of regional swimming intervention, <laughs> and as an ex-swimmer, swimming was my kind of primary focus. But the the program was um, with various different target groups across this particular region, and one of those was older adults. And a lot of the the program was going particularly well with that group, um, and a lot of people were were really heavily involved and supportive of the program. I was getting some fantastic data, and as part of the ongoing kind of process of doing the PhD. I decided that this was probably where the most fruitful research was going to emerge. And I hadn't set out to deliberately focus on the older adults in the program from the outset, but it was kind of a mixture of a pragmatic uh, decision, but also a kind of realization that a lot of these stories that I was hearing, a lot of the experiences that people were referring to were really, really fascinating. At, At the time I was in my early 20s and I'd not really thought about active aging as if I had thought about it it was in a very distant way but Mm -hmm. my experience of working with these groups and speaking to them really brought it home and made me reflect on my own family my extended family grandparents their experiences the experiences of others that in the community that I knew as well and I sort of almost fell in love with with the way that um, they were explaining things and um, their accounts of things and uh I thought it it was increasingly apparent to me that it was really a worthwhile area of research. And ever since then, um, 
one thing leads to the other and I've ended up doing an awful lot of research with with similar groups based on those initial reflections. Yeah, and I think I would love to hear some of those experiences that come up in that came up in your research maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. For sure. I I guess when we start talking about sociology and aging and and looking at the literature one of the first things that kind of comes up that at least here in the Western countries, uh, we've had some very negative stereotypes about aging and, and very kind of uh, troubling narratives surrounding aging. So maybe we could start exploring sure. those, those that kind of context a little bit as we start out. Absolutely, yeah. I think this is this is a general kind of perspective a lot of people have on aging, and having taught uh, active aging and and uh, the ex- <coughs> understanding the experiences of older adults as they're active to numerous students over the years, I've found that a lot of these uh, perspectives and um, opinions about older adults they really do come out more when you're talking about aging than maybe when you're teaching on other areas, say gender or race, ethnicity, and so on. What I've uh, kind of coming at this obliquely about talking about how these um, negative discourses, if you like, um, present themselves over the years, I've consistently asked like every group of students that I've taught about this particular area to describe how they would uh, think about an aging person. Um, and I often get them to draw an aging person. I get them to write key words about what their perceptions of what it's like to physically age, what it's like to uh, to age socially, and also the psychological effects of, of aging. And invariably, the perspective young people give is is quite negative and quite brutal. Um, so when they're drawing an older person, they, they often draw somebody, you know, with a, a walking stick and slouched and poor posture, um, maybe, you know, large ears, etc. It might be that they'll focus on um, poor gait or or increasing weakness, sarcopenia, muscle wastage, and those sorts of things. They often think about older people as withdrawing from society in some sort of way, that they're increasingly lonely and isolated. And sometimes you get uh, students talking about psychological effects like lack of sleep, dementia. All of these things are hugely negative, and you get the distinct impression that if I'd have asked about a different group, say, for example, describe a particular race to me or describe to me a disabled group, they wouldn't have been so brutal. Um, And of course, all of this is predicated on the idea that I have asked them to describe aging. At no point do I say older person. Um, It's it's kind of fascinating to see that young people view aging as a problem and as a, a characteristic of the latter stages of life, as opposed to something that everyone is just doing from the moment that they're born. Um, And they often couch it in quite negative terms in all of these different kind of characteristics from physical, psychological and social as well. And what I tend to find that they're doing is that they're they're actually confusing. And I think this is very common um, in science more generally. The difference between just aging, which is just what we do um, as as we go through life from the moment we're born and, and so on, and then secondary aging, which is an interaction between aging and the onset of disease. And that tends to become more of an issue later in life. Um, and they're conflating these two terms. And I think a lot of us in science do this. Often, you know, people have the best of intentions. They're trying to, to help older adults. But this perspective, uh, this perception that they are somehow um, 
likely to be ill, they're in decline, they're, they're at risk of isolation, Ill, Ill health and ultimately dependency has its origins in this idea that aging is a problem for the old and that there are this is a problematic group of people because they're no longer developing or they're no longer um, at the same level as physically or psychologically that they might have been in the past and that somehow this is a highly negative thing. And what this tends to lead to, um, I would say, is is this narrative of, of deficit and narrative of decline with older adults, which we see quite often, as you say, across the West, particularly in terms of how older adults are represented, how they're considered as consumers or otherwise, um, and how their contribution mm. to society is often considered as well. Yeah, and when you talk about aging as something that we are all aging all the time and and i think when you look at sports participants that's that's a group of people who become aware of of the fact that we are aging typically Absolutely. earlier than than others i think this is a key point nor actually in terms of how we define age and how we define later life um because it's it's hugely arbitrary if we think about chronological age of course it doesn't work both in terms of context uh, for example Recently, um, I was asked, we, we were doing a consensus conference on physical activity and aging in Copenhagen, and I was given the unenviable task of trying to define who an older adult was. And of course, I went to the WHO and I looked at general descriptions of how they define older adults, and it was anyone over the age of 55. And of course, when I presented this to, to my colleagues, many of whom would have been probably at or above that age, they were actually a little bit offended. And um They were thinking, well, you, you know, it's you can't be old until you've retired, for example. And the retirement age in many of the countries that my colleagues were from was 65. So it had to be at least 65. And of course, they were forgetting that the WHO um, definition is based on what the retirement age is in Africa or Southern Asia or at different locations around the world. And it's the same with athletes. Of course, uh, an athlete can be old in their 30s um, and they may have a step change or retirement a lot earlier than people in the general population. So it's actually quite difficult to define who older adults are, and it is highly context-specific, I think. It's a socially produced idea that something happens to you at a certain chronological age, and from that point forward, it's often constructed as a negative sort of downward spiral towards dependency on other people. Yeah, I think the most kind of if you think about the sport context and and who is an older participant that in masters athletics they now you can start competing in in the masters when you are 30 years old in some countries so 35 would be quite the common one. And in Finland what they wanted to do they didn't want to use the word veteran athletics because that was kind of I guess they thought that people will assume that it's only for old people or something like that. Right. So they started to call it the the adults athletics. Okay. But then the senior athletes who are like over 18, they would be also adults. So that created even more confusion. And when I wanted to interview some of the coaches who were working with the adults athletics, which meant kind of the senior, uh, I mean, the veteran athletes, and they were saying that, Oh, I think you have confused this. That you probably want to talk to the senior uh, sport right. coaches, and it's like, no, I actually want to talk to you. So nobody knows anymore who is talking about what and and what are the terms to use. Absolutely, it's it's, it's very tricky and quite arbitrary as well. 
I think one of the main things about this, it, what we call it, is a narrative of decline or a deficit perspective on later life, is a lot of it is coming from a, an economic argument that old age starts at retirement and that there's a step change after retirement from production for society to then taking resources from society. And it comes from this idea of aging as a syndrome, as something that is um, increased risk of things like ill health and dependency on others and so on. And that the assumption that after that age, that magic age of retirement, that people will start taking from the system rather than contributing to it. And of course, it's a really difficult situation to be in for older adults because a lot of the advice that they're getting is to stay active, stay healthy, stay out of the healthcare um, sector and, you know, using increasingly sparse healthcare resources. But if they stay healthy and they remain healthy for longer, of course, they're then taking resources from the pension pot. So they're often stigmatized in two different ways because of this idea that they're takers rather than givers. That if they get sick and die, they're taking healthcare resources. If they stay healthy for longer, they're taking, you know, financial resources from elsewhere as well. So it's a real double bind. And this is where the idea that later life is somehow a deficit has come from. And a lot of it comes from this idea of comparison, I guess, that there's a normative idea that when you're younger, the likelihood of being sick is is less, the likelihood of being disabled or dependent is less. Of course, it's a sweeping generalization. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of illnesses have nothing to do with age whatsoever. And the same with dependency. But inevitably, we end up with a lot of kind of scientific perspectives with the best of intentions, comparing what the kind of peak uh, physical functionality, psychological functionality might be in a person to what it is later in life, um, particularly with a reference point uh, to the oldest old, you know, again, an arbitrary figure, but 75 plus tends to be that group is often defined as the oldest old. And inevitably, mm-hmm. and again, this this is really useful information. We need to know this information about physiological, psychological change, but it almost becomes an absolute marker of that person's uh, position, that person's capability, and the probability of them becoming uh, somehow uh, needful in, in later life. And it can lead quite easily to stigmatization, I would say. Yeah, I think the point you are making that sports sciences, exercise sciences, they are not just kind of providing neutral facts, but they are also shaping our culture and shaping our understandings and 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 kind of narratives that are built around and told around aging and and from sport and exercise science we get a lot of data about how somebody is getting slower and not as strong as they were before and and so forth sure. and all of that information is absolutely vital when we're thinking about you know the uh, what older adults uh, need support for or don't need support for what their capabilities are how to adapt physical activity and so on but my experience over the past decade or so of working with older adults is they're fully aware of these kind of labels and they're often very worried um, as you would be if you're told that your, your body is in decline and ultimately we're talking with this group terminal decline um, they become fearful of, of what their capabilities are and there are a number of studies out there that talk about how older adults often either they're worried about some of the let's call them more displeasurable elements of physical activity you know pain and doms and you know being out of breath and so on 
And in my experience with with people who've gone through things like heart attacks and stroke, they often misrecognize more serious symptoms as just part of getting old. So it can create a lot of confusion and worry amongst older adults to to be aware of these sort of negative um, discourses that are out there about what aging is and how it can potentially, unless you stay active, be a negative uh, cycle downwards, I suppose. And I think what is important and where we will be moving towards is to kind of keep in mind that the narrative of decline is the, not the only way of of understanding oh, aging, but it's one perspective which is yeah. valid in its own. So let's talk about those alternative narratives or alternative discourses. So what are those different ways to understand aging that are available and out there? Absolutely. So, yeah, the, the narrative of decline has been challenged now for, for 50 years, actually. It started in the 70s, really took off in the late 80s and 90s. Um, this idea that um, effectively aging is is just a negative period has been seriously challenged. Um, the terms are actually quite difficult to define. There's a lot of terms that are used as synonyms, um, things like successful aging, positive or healthy aging and active aging. And what they generally represent is is a challenge to this idea that later life is just this period of decline and deterioration and uh, reliance on others. And it, it promotes the idea that um, you can actually, later life can be a period of, of development, of self-fulfillment, of pleasure and leisure and new opportunities. And quite often this has come from challenging this idea that aging happens in a certain chronology and you know everything changes at 65 the original kind of idea behind this was successful aging which promotes the idea that a continuation of uh, the second age or middle life into a third age is a positive thing and it is possible at least according to its initial um, most famous authors Rowan Kahn it's possible to stay engaged stay productive and continue with the sorts of activities that you might have been a party to earlier in life and that aging later life doesn't have to be this negative period it sounds like this is just a matter of language but of course many of these discourses are internalized by older people um certainly as they are by other groups as well the, these are actually meaningful terms and the idea that new possibilities are opening up and stuff is a, is a really positive thing i would say so the successful aging discourse i would say and it's it, other authors have said the same is one of the most common um, and popular ideas within gerontology more generally as well and as i said it's got its origins or at least it became most famous with these uh, authors from north america rowan khan who are two medical doctors and they defined a list of criteria through which one could continue to engage and, and be successful as they put it later in life that had that put a kind of primary emphasis on physical functionality psychology and production So to continue contributing in both an economic and other way to society as well. So I would say a real shift and a real challenge to this narrative of decline a little bit more as well and presenting later life as a, a new opportunity. But the problem with successful aging, and I guess part of this is is you can see it who wrote it initially, I would say, in terms of some of its critique, is that it does place significant emphasis on individual choice and on um, physiological, psychological variables that are quite clinical and quite medical. And it tends to look mm -hmm. past a lot of yeah. the factors that are kind of to do with social, sociocultural determinants and the life circumstances of people. 
And what successful aging has been critiqued for in more recent times is it tends to overlook these contextual factors. And actually, I think Rowan Kahn, many, many authors have said that they probably underestimated the criteria it takes in order to be successful in later life. And of course, many, many elements of health and well-being and engagement in uh, physical activity and otherwise in later life, they're not necessarily things under our control and to do with personal choice. So there was a kind of critique of that initial successful aging idea. But again, it, there was a lot of value to it in the, because it challenged this presentation of later life as a negative kind of stage of, of one's life course. Yeah, and I think kind of how you describe it, it's still about declining a little bit less and, and kind of staying functional and continuing to contribute to society. But it doesn't really talk about anything that becoming older actually brings you something more that you didn't have before. So I'm just thinking about Eastern traditions where they kind of talk about life wisdom, maybe yep. spirituality. So you actually, you develop, you keep developing in certain ways, maybe not in your physical skills and competencies, but you actually gain something new as you get older. Absolutely. I think this this is, again, the emphasis on the clinical a little bit more than the sociocultural and the kind of personal developmental perspective. And of course, one of the problems with successful aging is that inevitably you end up with a division of the successful and the unsuccessful. And because of the hmm. lack of emphasis on social cultural factors, quite often the unsuccessful or almost, you know, it becomes quite coercive and uh, quite uh, harmful to people who would be defined as unsuccessful, irrespective of what their life choices are. And of course, we know that many elements of health and so on are, are nothing to do with choice. They're probabilities, they're about luck, they're about life circumstances, access to particular facilities and programs and opportunities that for some are just not possible and again this is this is why the social cultural is so important because many things are to do with inequalities in later life that are pre-existing and this is something that we, we can talk about later a little bit more is that later life is incredibly complex and when you add age to a person's identity and life circumstances you're not erasing all of the different kind of factors that might have affected them in the past so there are you know men and women older adults there are disabled there are non-disabled there are people of different ethnicities and so on none of those differences go away and they're not necessarily to do with uh kind of clinical factors and um absence of ill health they're to do with other types of inequalities and so on as well and successful aging tends to look past a lot of those factors i would say And it's been critiqued, uh, this, this neoliberal label has been applied to it in the past, that it places too much emphasis on individual choice and not the kind of social, cultural, social determinants of within which those choices are made, I suppose. And you're right, it's more about staving mm. off ill health than it is about continuing development, I suppose. But so you already mentioned that there are also alternatives to successful aging so active aging discourse would be one of those alternatives so do you think that is doing better in some ways i think in some ways it certainly is it, it's not without uh, critique um for reference by the way that one of the best explanations of the difference between these these terms would be a paper by foster and walker in a special issue of um, the, uh, the gerontological society of america's journal 
a gerontologist. Um, there is a lot of, I would say, confusion, and it's quite hard to see the differences between these terms. They're, they're sometimes used as synonymous. Uh, but the, the active aging has its origins in, let's call it more European schools of thought, and that when the WHO got involved in how later life is defined, there was an increasing emphasis placed in an active aging approach on those social cultural determinants. And also trying to move away from this aging as syndrome and older adults as, as patients to be treated and to prevent getting ill, they became more active um, elements within people being active in later life. So personal choice, well-being, quality of life, and the kind of cultural context in which people were situated were placed in a much higher emphasis in terms of approaches that ag advocate um, successful aging. So I suppose this, this, this quite critical approach of the clinical emphasis of successful aging became a lot more holistic with active aging. And people became a lot more sensitized to the, this notion of the life course. I mean, the, the way I often describe this to, to the, the students I've worked with over the years is not to think of that old person in front of you as just an old person, but a person who's lived a life. They've, they, you know, maybe got 60 years of experience of being active or being inactive. And active aging tries to pay attention to that, to try and look at older adults as a heterogeneous group as people who've had specific experiences and face particular challenges or inequalities over their lives that probably affect the way that they engage with physical activity now. And I think that this kind of recognition of social, cultural inequalities and of personal biography is incredibly important. And I think that active aging, the general move towards active aging is, is helped in that regard, I would say. At the same time, uh, active aging is, is not without its critics. It, it can still become coercive because it often promotes the idea that staying involved in, in civic, uh, you know, civic engagement, physical activity, being involved in voluntary work, being involved in the community is highly advantageous, but that can also become overwhelming. And there's often, I would say, in active aging approaches, an overemphasis on doing more all of the time. Um, of staying engaged and still contributing and being very proactive. And it doesn't often distinguish which kinds of approaches are, are, are more helpful. Uh, and it doesn't often focus on kind of, it can be quite prescriptive sometimes, I would say. Uh, it's almost like a, sometimes in active aging, there can be almost a youthful imperialism, if you like, of younger policymakers and, and people offering opportunities to older adults according to what they would see as being attractive. Um, and trying to appeal to them in those ways. And they're not, older adults aren't always asked about what their personal choices are and what their experiences might be. And this is the kind of flip side of active aging, that it can potentially become coercive and you still have the active and inactive ages um, and the potential for stigma as well, I would say. I think how you describe it, we still see very clearly that there is kind of this Western ideas about what is a good life behind it so you should be staying active in the society and, and you should be doing all these things i yeah. think we can compare that to the chinese the taoist philosophy when kind of the idea is that when you get older then you can withdraw from society and you can live on the mountain and live as a hermit and <laughs> right. you know think about life and <laughs> watch birds and and butterflies <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating as well, because I mean, a lot of um, these kind of approaches to promoting physical activity in later life, they often 
take the start point that aloneness is a negative thing. And we see this, this again, a, a convolution of aloneness with loneliness and that losing some relationships, let's say in, in the workplace, for example, are somehow catastrophic. And they overlook the idea that you can develop relationships in other ways. And it's okay to be alone sometimes. Yes, a complete withdrawal from society and a completely inactive lifestyle is probably harmful on multiple levels. But this basic assumption that being old equals withdrawal from society unless you remain incredibly active and actively seek to do more all of the time as being negative is it can be challenged i suppose and i think this is an important point in in terms of highlighting the how we can empower older adults is to give them the choice it's, it's, and say it's okay to be alone sometimes it's okay to not be moving and doing sometimes as long as that's kind of not the only thing that you do and then you know the the kind of evidence of health and um, the problems and so on can become a little bit more applicable i would say but yeah th- there is a danger as you say about what is a good life active aging can potentially become like a set of standards and rules um about what individuals should do in in later life and there's a danger it becomes a bit of a moral thing a bit of a moral imperative about people's responsibility as ethical citizens to remain healthy remain active remain engaged and what that tends to do, again, we're going down this kind of neoliberal uh, critique, is those that can probably do, those that have the opportunities and the resources to remain active, to remain engaged and do more, more, more all of the time, tend to do more and help, hence stay, you know, uh, more engaged, whereas others who don't have those opportunities might not. And although no one's been harmed, you end up with an equity harm, so a, a broadening of inequality. Um, in things like health as in um, in later life. So again, this neoliberal cr- mm. critique has been applied quite a bit to, to active aging as it has to successful aging, even though there's this attempt to move away from purely looking at uh, success or failure in clinical terms. So yeah, it's the, the, the sentiment is good, but there are pitfalls, you know, in terms of moralizing and in terms of judging um, and applying standards and rules to later life that can occur without care i i think when you mentioned that flip side it's kind of a sad idea that let's say if we talk about you retire from work and and then you can kind of do whatever you want (laughs) yeah but then like (laughs) in in that context you can also fail to age like in the right way yeah i mean this is this is the anecdotal side of things isn't it if i think about speaking to older adults quite often they're exp- they'll, they'll tell you uh, the kind of healthy let's call them youngest old and, and middle old they'll say we've never been busier since we were retired uh, because of all these new opportunities that can open up but then they can you can kind of there's a counterpoint there the people that have become ill through no fault of their own or through other factors you know in cardiac rehabilitation for example um who they're kind of um their choices are restricted because of their the health in effect so yeah i think we can move on to when you mentioned about how important the social context is and the cultural context and now that you work in denmark and and kind of the nordic movement culture and the welfare society is in in certain ways very different from the uk for example so it would be interesting to hear your personal experiences and kind of your thoughts on how these two different uh, contexts, how to how to think about aging and what are the differences that you can see. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's 
it's a tricky one because I've been out of the UK for a number of years now and, and my familiarity with it, has, it obviously declines over time. I think there are some serious similarities between the way older adults are catered for in, in Denmark um, and the UK. There's a lot of emphasis in both locations in terms of supporting communities of older adults and empowering them to be active in their own terms. There is this general awareness, I would say, and a growing awareness um, that we shouldn't work on older adults. We shouldn't treat them as passive uh, patients or as people that we need to somehow cure of aging, uh, but we need to work with them and offer them opportunities and, and so on. And there are a lot of agencies that, that do this in terms of trying to support the older community in both locations. What I would say, though, is that the way um, society in the Nordic model in Denmark, uh, my specific experience, is set up, is it is easier to remain engaged and to remain part of an older community that is not necessarily separated from the rest of society in the Danish context than in the UK. And part of this is to do with simple things like the lived environment and how easy it is to move around uh, using, you know, to, to run or to cycle or to, you know, use public transport and all of those sorts of things. It's hugely normative in Denmark to see an older person on a bike uh, traveling somewhere, whereas in the UK it's not, um, or less so at least. But I also think the way that uh, physical activity, sport and other activities are delivered here in a more general sense is slightly different. And maybe people are familiar with the associational model of, of delivering sport. They call it idrat here, a collective term for lots of different activities, exercise, sport and otherwise. But many people, most Danes, are involved in these associations from an early age. Um, they tend to be family affairs. And people will grow up in these, the Foreninger, the associations, and they'll stay there throughout their life course. And as a result of that, you'll see whole family groups, whole kind of different social strata of Danish society being together and active in, in similar ways. Um, so the grandparents will be with the kids in these associations. And these become kind of very supportive of the idea of keeping older adults integrated into society. Whereas my experience of the UK is there are often lots of services and programs and opportunities offered for older adults, but they're often off, um, given to them on a 65 plus basis, you know, in terms of age, or they're often separated from the mainstream. And the kind of erosion of this, um, you know, clubs and associations over the years in Britain makes it a little bit harder to have those sorts of environments. So it's probably more normative in Denmark for older adults to firstly be active, but also to remain part of a more kind of holistic society. The kind of alternative, I mean, the, this is a great situation to be in in the Danish context, I would say, but there, there is a flip side to this as well. Um, and that is because people tend to grow up and stay in their associations. Uh, they can be quite intimidating places to join as somebody new. Um, so that they're often they have their really strongly established groups and people tend to live in these communities that are quite localized and territorial I would say and so it can be intimidating to be an outsider stepping into some of these communities and the communities can also be quite normative as well um, so it can be hard sometimes to see diversity in some of the associations I, w I think I mean we did a study recently looking at um, the kind of policy documentation of, of active aging across Copenhagen. And there was an overwhelming kind of picture of who people involved in these associations and some of the programs offered by the municipality were going to be. 
and diversity was one of the things that was lacking in those images and the accounts of who um, active people in Copenhagen are. So there was a lack of people of colour, for example, in images. And um, there's often a, a kind of image of, of this associational model as being for everybody, but in a very passive way. So there isn't always a, an active pursuit of diversity and opening doors to new members and stuff. It's often just assumed that everyone has been a member of one of these societies throughout their life. And therefore, there's not a need for active recruitment and so on in, in many of these contexts, I think. Um, and that's maybe different to the UK, I would say. There's maybe more awareness of, of diversity in some cases there. And uh, have you joined some clubs or associations <laughs> yourself? Do you know what? I haven't. I, I haven't. And that's... This is where my personal experience comes in as a little bit as well as a migrant and someone who's coming to Denmark. Um, so yeah, they they uh -huh. are intimidating for me. And I mean, I am you know I'm I'm from the UK and I often do things. You know, I, I'm a swimmer and I prefer to just get in and swim. I don't need to be in a group to do those sorts of things. So there might be an element of personal choice as well. But it is difficult to know. You know, I don't have the habitus to go into one of these associations and understand the etiquette, understand the way things work very easily. And it can be quite intimidating, uh -huh. I would say. I, I think so. Yeah, I remember when I went to Denmark for my PhD studies in 2011. So I was in Aarhus and uh, I joined the athletics club right away. And and I guess what you say about diversity is that, um, well, I didn't speak any Danish in the beginning. So it was a little bit difficult to even find the information and when they train and who to contact yeah. and So yeah, but I just showed up. But I, I think the point <laughs> is that they kind of um, everybody's welcome, but yep. you have to have the means to find them. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think you you almost have to behave yourself. You have to understand the community. You know, they they can be quite. There's a lot of assumptions and implicit rules that everyone kind of just knows because they've been there for so long. It can be quite tricky for for new mm. members or or new people. Certainly casual participants to, to get involved in I think many of them these associations require an element of commitment and I actually think it's again we've studied mm -hmm. provision of, of uh, activities for older adults in Denmark and uh, Copenhagen more specifically and that model is actually transferred over to the older community more generally there are a lot of um, the, the activity centers and um, places where older communities are expected to go if they're not necessarily as active in their associations anymore, but it uses the same model. It, you know, you have to um, sign up for a membership, for example, with a, a small fee. And there's hugely democratic processes within these organizations, which, you know, is, is very positive in many ways. Um, many of the older members are invited to become members of, of councils and boards and to vote on what sorts of activities are offered and to give them a voice in terms of... Um, provision of things like physical activity um, but at the same time this community element it, it kind of reproduces homogeneity in many respects and there's what we found in terms of the rhetoric that's used in the provision of these sorts of opportunities is a lot of contradictions so on the one hand there's a big emphasis on being part of something bigger being with others that are just like you and doing things that you hold in common and are probably mutually enjoyable And then there's, there's a kind of message that you can do what you want in these locations and this can be a place to find meaning for yourself. And this kind of individual rhetoric is situated within a, a kind of context. Well, yes, you might find meaning, but it's probably got to be meaning through a community. And 
there's maybe a limit to how much personal choice you can have in a community of that nature because you have to in some way fit in otherwise you start to deviate and, and challenge the norms and rules of those communities so it can be a double-edged sword but I would say there's a lot to mm-hmm. be hugely positive about in terms of the way physical activity in later life is catered for in the Nordic model, definitely. Yeah, and I think when you say about kind of the normativity and, and kind of the culture of the clubs and associations, I guess just one thing to share from my research was that when I was talking to the coaches and the volunteers in the club, they had a very normative script about your life course as a member of the club so when you are young then you are an athlete but when you kind of transition out from being being an active athlete then your role is to become a coach and a volunteer and some of them were not very big fans of uh, kind of veteran or masters athletes because that was your selfish choice to continue doing sport yourself whereas the right thing to do in the club is now move to the role of giving back to the others and coaching uh, the new generation of athletes so in that sense it wasn't encouraging you to continue being active yourself in sport sure i think those sorts of things they extend way beyond the nordic model and the, the things that you know when we we talk about being active in later life and we talk about the types of programs and activities that are promoted offered and so on is that relationships between older adults aren't equal. You know, they're, they're not always neutral. They're not always mutually supportive. We hope they are. They often are. Many older adults have kind of shared experiences and so on that, and, and things that they can support each other with. But equally, just as in any, any kind of sport, those relationships can be about dominating or about kind of setting the agenda in a particular location, potentially even exploiting others or at least competing with them. And I've seen this in my own research with I'm doing a lot of um, work in rehabilitation settings or have been over the years. And there's a few projects ongoing right now. And many of these programs, they encourage ex-participants to come back and be volunteers and support the new members and to tell them about what they're likely to experience and so on. And that can be hugely positive because there's a sounding board for kind of people who are coming in maybe from acute illness or chronic illness that may be a bit intimidated it's it's a different face than the doctor or the nurse or you know someone in a white coat that they can relate to but at the same time it often gives these volunteers a huge amount of power that they often kind of my experiences they often rationalize what is going to happen to new members in terms of their own experience and the message is look if you work hard and you do things right you can be just like me and instantly that kind of places them in a position of, of, you know, in the hierarchy, they're kind of setting the agenda on what to expect and what to do. I've even seen it on se- several occasions and um, during, you know, observations and so on, where volunteers will undermine the advice of medical professionals and say, you know, don't listen to those guys. They're, what they're telling you um, about your recovery, you can ignore it. You, you're going to do better than this. And it kind of sets up, uh-huh. uh, not necessarily false hope, but it, it creates a false equivalence um, between one person's experience of rehabilitation and the experience of others. And of course, we know in, in many of these kind of programs, people have very different symptoms, very different biographies, different opportunities and so on. Um, and these hierarchies can still exist within these kinds of things, I think. Hmm. So I think what has become quite clear by our discussion by now is that Also, if we think about aging, there are all these different 
kind of discourses and narratives and also the intentions of different actors in, in the sport club or in the community. And that kind of creates quite um, also conflicting messages to to older people about the role of physical activity. Absolutely, yeah. I think that this, this idea about interpretation, lived experience of, of physical activity is so vital in terms of how older adults experience um, physical activity in later life. These, as we said before, older people are not just patients to be worked upon. They're often staying active or choosing to be active based upon their own kind of experiences over their life course, based upon their personal preferences, things like enjoyment, pleasure, the sorts of motivations that um, encourage younger people to be active as well. They're just young people, but a bit older now. All of those norms and ideas and relationships with others they, they still exist albeit maybe in, in different forms in later life as well so it's not just a matter of offering something to older adults and it being self-evidently good for them and they will do it i mean we know you know people that they're not rational they're not irrational they're they're emotional they can change day to day in terms of what they do interpretation of of physical activity in later life is is so crucial um to explain you know understanding how what it's like to be to be active in later life and this is one of the other potential issues with with successful and active aging is is sometimes a picture can be painted of overwhelming positivity that all activity is good activity and all you've got to do is engage and it's fun and enjoyable and um, really worthwhile and of course i mean many of these messages they're, they're made with the best of intentions and they're coming from people with an active stake in physical activity and many people who've enjoyed physical activity throughout their lives what can potentially happen is that maybe someone you know been inactive for a long period of time will go and become active it can physical activity can in some ways be unpleasant it can be a little bit painful later life obviously all of this stuff we talked about earlier in terms of physiological change it hasn't gone away. We still know that there are going to be physical, psychological changes in later life. And sometimes a, a too pleasant picture of physical activity can be painted that once the subjective experience of being physically active is encountered by an older adult, they can become disillusioned um, with, with what physical activity is. You know, again, my research is focused on some of these embodied, embodied elements of physical activity in later life and older adults still tell you about how different it feels and how their their bones now grind or their muscles pull or maybe um you know i talked about cardiac rehabilitation before many of the participants in that particular program talked about how the physical experience of being physically active mirrored some of the symptoms of their heart attacks before you know being out of breath and hot and and sweaty and things and some of these things can be nerve-wracking and we need to pay more attention mm -hmm. to these subjective elements of physical activity when we think about supporting older adults to be more active in later life. Um, that it's very important to, to be aware of, of some of the, the positives and negatives. It would be quite interesting, maybe now it's the time to ask you tell a little bit about those experiences that people have shared in your research and what would be some of the things that kind of stand out to you and, and that had an influence on you to put effort into understanding this research area yeah okay um so i've been talking about this quite a bit already haven't i but i think that it's very important to mm -hmm. to, to present a, a kind of fair uh, appraisal of what physical activity is and to be aware that there, there are elements of complexity 
in terms of physical activity at any stage in life, but also in later life as well. I think one of the key goals and one of the things that we see time and again is that when older adults are listened to, when they're given voice, when they're empowered to have an active stake in uh, what it is that they do, um, the, the programs can be a lot more positive, I think. And we need to be aware of their perspectives to have more empathy with older adults and try and avoid this projection of, I'm saying our, as a younger person, our values and experiences of physical activity onto someone in later life, I think. It's really important to try and look beyond them as passive recipients of physical activity programs and think about, are there new ways to work with older adults to redefine what success or competence or skill or development looks like in, in the third age um, in later life? And as you said earlier, Nora, I think it's very important to emphasize these new opportunities for development, but not development as we would define it. Not necessarily, you know, huge increases in physical functionality or um, making money or something along those lines. But in terms of redefining things like athletic competence, redefining meaningfulness and achievement, I mean, there's a strong argument to say that being successful in later life is being at peace with being someone in later life and doing what you enjoy, doing what you love. Um, and to try and empower older adults to be okay with that. Um, and I'm sure many older adults are, and it's part of our kind of this youthful imperialist idea that um, older adults are somehow lonely and in decline and so on, that, that makes us look past some of these positive elements of, of later life sometimes in physical activity. So I certainly think that's something we can do a lot better and I think there's a number of different elements to do with um, how active aging could be better as well that, that, that come to the fore. So we spoke about some of the strengths of the Nordic model, for example, um, in terms of not isolating older adults and offering services specifically, you know, in isolation to people in later life and excluding their families or younger people. Um, I think this more integrated approach to promoting physical activity in later life with older adults is, is much needed. And that goes, uh, it applies equally to the youngest old as well. People who aren't at that retirement age, but maybe, you know, later in their careers, they're 55 plus, as we said before, making that transition is not an instantaneous thing, but um, something that you're, you're thinking about for a longer period. And, I suppose what we're talking about here is trying to avoid either discursive or literal marginalization of older adults in terms of some of the programs that are offered. Now, obviously, there's a limit to some of this. You know, some of this might sound quite idealistic. And I think there's nothing wrong with dependency uh, later in life if if that's the situation someone finds themselves in. Um, but I think that this the danger of this aging syndrome approach is that we end up... Um, placing the risk of ill health in later life on a par with actual ill health in later life. And I think a distinction needs to be made in terms of how integrated we, we keep active aging with our general kind of models of physical activity promotion. And uh, I think you already kind of talked about a few things that you would like to be uh, seeing that happens in this field, but maybe I'll... Uh, yeah, ask again that what would be the things that, um, what are the ideas that you are most excited about in, in aging research and what are some of the things that you are working on at the moment or 
or you would hope to be working on in this area in the future? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of good research in terms of physical activity and uh, and aging that's that's coming out at the moment. So there are a number of studies that are beginning to look more at the kind of the emotionality, uh, embodied experiences of pleasure, positivity in physical activity. Um, I think there's there's not been enough of an emphasis on those sorts of elements in the past. I mean, there's a tendency when when we frame the the so-called problem of aging we often first frame it in terms of if you're not active these bad things will happen but there's there's a strong argument and there's increasing um research that places pleasure at the forefront and says that this is not necessarily just about staving off decline at all it's about doing something for enjoyment and there are a number of groups cassie phoenix summit durham emmanuel tool and others who are starting to look at um the pleasurable elements of physical activity in later life as an end in itself rather than as a functional tool to try and somehow stave off um, decline later. I think that's very, very positive. Some of this work is particularly positive because it looks at that positivity not as a thing that is experienced in isolation by older adults, but also the effects of those narratives on younger people as well. A, a great paper that, that Cassie did, I think it was with Noreen Orr, springs to mind, where the narratives of older men who were weightlifters were presented to younger men and they changed their perspectives on what later life was and stopped kind of sympathizing with the older men and, and looking at them as somehow weaker and in decline and started to kind of envisage that is what I want to be when I'm that age and starting to empathize a little bit more with, with people in that situation. So there's a lot of good stuff that is, is moving towards this more positive, embodied and subjective accounts of um, physical activity in later life. In terms of my own research, I have several projects going on at the moment that are focusing on emotionality as well, but in slightly different contexts. So uh, as I mentioned, um, currently a couple of projects going on in rehabilitation, one in uh, spinal cord rehab the other one in cardiac rehabilitation, again, trying to understand these subjective experiences. Some of these experiences in those contexts, though, of course, are tempered by a balance of positivity and negativity. And I think that we, we did some work recently in swimming on, a, a, you know, a kind of competitive swimmers, but the argument kind of applies to older adults as well in terms of how we understand some of the more negative elements of physical activity like pain. So pain can be good. It can be about, you know, fatigue, development, um, you know, the kind of good pain you get after a good workout in your muscles. But it can be bad pain if it relates to injury or illness and so on. So I'm interested in how older adults experience those sorts of elements of physical activity as well, both in the rehab setting and also uh, in different kind of formats of physical activity. So there's a big emphasis in, in Denmark and at my institution on team sports, for example, and how that sort of interplay of togetherness versus kind of personal fulfillment through physical activity might be borne out as well. Those are all very exciting directions. So I, I look forward to reading the research that that you will produce in the future. I think we will start wrapping up. So it would be really nice if you can put like a couple of closing comments or take-home messages for our listeners today. Okay. Um, I think one of the, the, the key things is that part of this sociological critique of the narrative of decline is it, it could be misunderstood. So it's not a destructive critique. And one of the experiences we had at the consensus conference, so to set the scene, we, we were involved with multiple different groups of experts from 
across Europe and North America, some physiologists, some people in neuroscience, psychologists and the social sciences as well. And what we found is we have a lot more in common than divides us. And often this sociological critique of how we frame aging might appear negative, but it's more about just being careful about how you define age and the problem of aging in relation to physical activity. So I think many of colleagues from different sub-disciplines found it positive that we brought these ideas to, to their attention. And um, this awareness of culture, I think, is something that we need to think about as scientists more generally. This awareness that our words probably mean more to the communities that we're working with than they might to the scientific community. And to, to kind of this balance between um, staving off decline, sure, that's important, but also emphasizing the potential positives of later life and being active in later life are very important. And I think that this awareness of the cultural context in which our work occurs is, is very, very important in terms of thinking about how many people in, again, across society, but also in later life, they don't, they're not necessarily inactive because of any sort of personal flaw or unwillingness to be inactive. It's probably as much to do with the, the social cultural context and determinants that they exist in about what opportunities exist for them and their possibilities to, to take those opportunities. And I think this, if we become aware of these kinds of contexts, then we're aware of older adults as, you know, people with a life course as not just an older adult, but a sentient person with feelings, experiences, subject to other kinds of inequalities as well. We open up opportunities to empower those type, you know, older adults to, to define for themselves, not just have defined for them what it means to live a good later life. And I think that empowerment is incredibly important. Um, yeah, not just thinking them as passive, but as active uh, people involved in not only taking part, but design and delivery of programs as well, I think is important. Thank you for this inspirational discussion, Adam. No problem, Nora. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.